0: It would be so helpful to have your Bible open or your Bible up there at Luke chapter 4. So we're up to week two in our new series on Encountering Jesus. So Luke chapter 4. And there's an outline in the back of the news as well if you'd find that helpful. But let's pray and ask for God's help as we come to God's Word. Gracious God, we thank you so much that in your kindness, in your mercy, in your goodness, that we can know you and grow in our knowledge of your love for us. Lord, we so desire that we would live faithfully, that our trust would be evident in our lives. And so we pray that you would be worked now in the power of your Spirit, Lord, please, shaping our hearts, our minds, and our wills, that we would increasingly live in obedience and faithfulness to you. In Jesus' name, amen. So Jesus has just returned from being baptised in the Jordan. You might be wondering, why did Jesus need to be baptised? That seems a bit odd because the type of baptism, of course, that John offered was a baptism of repentance, of saying, sorry for our sin. So if Jesus was God, why did he need to do this? Uh, a cynic might say, aha, gotcha, see, Jesus must not have been perfect, else why would he have volunteered for this type of baptism? But it's super clear that the reason that Jesus was baptised was because it was a sign, it was a signal pointing forward that Jesus has come, not identifying as a sinner, but in order to stand in the place of of sinners. That's central to who Jesus is and God's mission for him. There's that great confirmation, you might recall, that as Jesus comes up and out of the water, the Holy Spirit descends on him like a dove, the voice of the Father affirming, you are my son, whom I love, with you I am well pleased. It's uh, pretty special, this is a real high moment, you know, the Holy Spirit like a dove, the voice of God from above, this is the precursor to Jesus bursting onto the stage of public ministry. But before he bursts onto that stage, something altogether surprising happens. That his debut in a public ministry is not marked by an impressive speech or a massive rally or a cool launch party or a whirlwind regional tour. But Jesus' debut is marked by a time of testing in the wilderness. Now, when you think of wilderness, you might think of some sort of remote, forested place. The sort of place, unless you're staying in some sort of off-grid eco-lodge, will leave you vulnerable, alone, exposed, and left long enough, your survival might be on the line. So I think less wilderness retreat, more Simpson desert. That's where Jesus is led. And of course, if you were hearing this and you're a first century Jew, as soon as you heard 40 days in the wilderness, bells would be going off in your head because the parallel with 40 years that Israel spent wandering in the wilderness, that parallel would be kind of inescapable to draw immediately questions are raised. What is happening here? What is God showing us? Whilst Israel failed in its time of testing, will Jesus prove faithful? Jesus was tempted. Now, if you have a look at your Bible and it says that Jesus was tempted, your translation might use the word tempted, others might use the word tested. You might even find it interchangeably used in different verses. We often think of temptation as sort of wanting to do something that you really shouldn't and testing as being prepared for something that we are meant to do. So, you know, you might be tempted to go and eat a cheeseburger just after you've been to the gym and you probably shouldn't do that. Or you might be tested as challenges prepare you for greater challenges ahead. So I might wonder, so which is it? Well, in the original language, there's actually only one word for both. And so it's sort of combined. There's a sense of both Jesus being tested and tempted through this time. So, of course, I'm sure you will have known that it's the Holy Spirit who leads him out, but it's the devil who does the tempting. Jesus is being tested in order to prepare him for everything that is yet to unfold, Jesus is being tempted, needing to actively choose God's ways instead of that of the enemy. So this really is one of the most uh, unusual encounters in the Gospels, and it reveals to us the goal of the enemy, the tactics employed, and the resolve of Jesus. First, the goal of the enemy... Is to divert Jesus from God's mission. Would you look in the verse 1 of chapter 4? Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, left the Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness, where for 40 days he was tempted by the devil. He ate nothing during those days, and at the end of them, he was hungry. Now, when you hear that Jesus was hungry, you might think that seems like quite the understatement. No kidding, he must have been hungry. Uh, You might get a bit hangry if you miss one single meal in a day. In our household, if dinner is running late, then there's normally a very cranky four-year-old. But 40 days without food, it's, it's almost impossible to imagine. Jesus would have been left extraordinarily vulnerable, physically, psychologically, emotionally. When we're tired or worn out we can be really exposed left really exposed to temptation as well but sometimes when we can think of this we think well somehow this was easy for jesus yes he's god's son but he's also fully human he wasn't just pretending And the enemy wasn't simply popping in at the end of 40 days with three temptations, like three little riddles at the end, but what is implied and described here is diabolic, that Jesus has been continually bombarded and barraged. We're just hearing three temptations at the end. Jesus is tired. He is vulnerable. And as the enemy enters in, The goal is not merely to trip Jesus up, but striking deeper to cause Jesus to question the heart of who he is and the mission that God has planned. So note in verses 3 and 9, so preceding two of the temptations, so verse 3, if you are the Son of God, tell this stone to become bread. And then verse 9, if you are the Son of God, throw yourself down from here. So, of course, this is not the enemy being, you know, genuinely curious about who Jesus is. It's not like, oh, hey, Jesus, um, just wondering, are you the Son of God? You know, if you're the Son of God, could you prove it? To me, I'm genuinely interested. The enemy knows precisely who Jesus is. In fact, all throughout the Gospels, often the occasions in which we witness with most clarity Jesus' identity is not from Jesus' disciples or his other friends, but from the various manifestations of evil with which he comes into conflict. They don't trust in him, but they know who he is. So just a little further on in chapter 4 we read of Jesus' encounter with a man who was possessed in the synagogue. And as we read that encounter, we hear the cry, have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. There's no confusion. In fact, later on, Luke tells us also in chapter 4 that the normative experience when Jesus encountered possessed people was that they knew that he was the Messiah and would often shout and respond in his presence, you are the Son of God. It's a window, it's it's a dark window into a very serious problem in our world of cosmic proportion. That evil exists knowing who God is, yet stands in opposition. Whilst God is the God of order and life evil in the full knowledge of who God is only seeks to bring about disorder and destruction how God goes about setting that right it's part of the the grand arc of the Bible so starting in Genesis that as we read of the fall we see that the problem of evil and sin are the same it's the corruption rebellion against god's goodness and rule the effects of that spill out and over all over the place we see it in the world and without too much intense scrutiny we also can recognize that in ourselves but jump ahead to the end of the bible so revelation we see a sneak peek in fact a bit more than a sneak peek but we see how it's going to end of the trajectory of where things will land And spoiler alert, we see that God will judge the world and that all evil and sin, along with its consequences, will be put to bed. So God won't simply dismiss the problem of evil as unimportant. God won't simply destroy everything because it's all tainted by sin. But God's intention was to defeat evil once and for all through his son. So, Jesus, God's son, is how we get from A to B. So, Adam, a son of God in the original garden, failed to live faithfully to God. Israel, also spoken as a son of God, failed to live faithfully to God to bring about his purposes. But Jesus, who is both God's son and a son of God, will be faithful. That's what the enemy is trying to disrupt. That's the goal. Second, the tactics employed. Let's look at these temptations one by one. So verse 3, The devil said to him, If you are the son of God, tell this stone to become bread. The first tactic employed by the enemy was to address a genuine need. So it should be no surprise that the very first place that the enemy strikes, tempts Jesus, tries to sneak in, is with a legitimate need. Jesus is hungry. And so he's tempted to make bread. Now, at one level, that seems pretty appropriate. You might think, what could possibly be wrong with that? Now, as far as we know, Jesus hadn't made some sort of promise to the Father, so making bread wouldn't be a breaking of that promise. Uh, Jesus doesn't... Seem to have anything against bread in general. You know, later on, he, he multiplied one loaf and fed thousands of people, so it can't be that. And so the clue, though, is in Jesus' response in verse 4. He says, It is written, man shall not live by bread alone. The text Jesus is quoting is a reference to when God inflicted his people with hunger, not that they, so they would suffer, but to recognise that the greatest hunger should be for him. And in a way, the enemy is saying, look, Jesus, you have a legitimate need. You're hungry. And your father, he has left you in this position. But you know what? You're God's son. You have the power to do something about this on your own, to act now and supply your own need how we can be so tempted like that. We can have all sorts of genuine needs, things for which we we properly hunger for, but then foolishly look to fulfil them in all the wrong places because we don't trust that God will ultimately satisfy. It's a very simple principle. Just because a need is genuine... It doesn't justify any way to fulfill it. Might long for companionship, but not really trusting God will satisfy, seek to fulfill that in ways that would be just out of line with God's will. What sort of king is Jesus? And the answer is the type that does not use their power to satisfy that for which they hunger, but the one who lives in obedience in order to satisfy the will of the Father. Second tactic employed by the enemy was to not trust God's timing. Verse 5. The devil led him up to a high place and showed him in an instant all the kingdoms of the world. And he said to him, I will give you all their authority and splendor. It has been given to me. And I can give it to anyone I want to. If you worship me, it will be yours. Now, at one level, uh, pretty obvious. If We did a quick survey. um, Should you worship the devil? I think we'd come back pretty conclusively. No, that would be the wrong thing to do. But, But know that there's absolutely something else quietly and deceptively at play. Instant gratification. So know that all the things that the devil promises, well, Jesus actually already has the right to rule. We see that time and time throughout the Bible, like in Psalm 2. You are my son. Today I've become your father. Ask me, and I will make the nations your inheritance, the ends of the earth your possession. So the problem here is not that Jesus would rule. That's been promised. The problem is the timeline. The the devil showed it to Jesus in an instant. Did you note that? He offers instantly so the problem is one of immediacy it wasn't time yet Jesus had the right to rule but the enemy offered a shortcut to choose glory before suffering when Jesus suffering must precede his glory but Jesus even with all that on offer would prefer to worship the Lord rather than rule the world So hence his response, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. To skip suffering would mean no way for salvation. The enemy would love that. It's a real danger that we can so long for something, something that actually might be very good, it can be a good longing, but find ourselves frustrated with God's timing that we just try to rush ahead shoehorn our circumstances and fill in the blanks to kind of say i want it now i'm just not willing to wait to take a shortcut by cutting out god we really need to be on guard against that especially as we live in a world that that teaches our every whim should be immediately fulfilled it's why one of the best piece of advice for us that when we're faced with temptation is not to try to take it on uh head head to head like jesus does but just to flee to get out of there because so often we're just susceptible to not trusting in god's timing the third tactic employed by the enemy was to put god to the test so verse 9 the devil led him to jerusalem and had him stand on the highest point of the temple if you are the son of god he said throw yourself down from here. He will command his angels concerning you to guard you carefully. They will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. So in light of Jesus using a scripture each and every time he's tempted, did you note that? Hopefully you picked up on that. Uh, the devil goes, I'll get on with that program. And he quotes from Psalm 91. And what's quite amazing is that there's nothing wrong with the quote. It is an accurate quote, but there is something wrong about its use. Jesus replied, it is written, do not put the Lord God to the test. So it's like the devil is saying, come on, Jesus, don't you need evidence to know that God cares? Jump off. Prove that you really trust the Father. Now, not only is there a difference uh, between stepping out in faith and taking stupid risks, but the enemy is presenting this as a test of Jesus' faith when it would actually be evidence of a lack of faith. It's saying, despite all the evidence you have of God's faithfulness, I'm not actually sure, and I need something else. Totally precarious. So you can see what Jesus is showing us. Faith prefers not to elevate need, but to hunger for God. Faith prefers not to rush ahead, but to rest in God's timing. Faith prefers not to test God, but to trust God's faithfulness. That's the resolve of Jesus. He doesn't debate the devil. He doesn't throw around the idea for a bit and workshop it. Jesus simply confronts and drowns out the enemy's lies simply with God's truth, trusting in God's plans. Such a great model for us. Uh, Like in every decision that we make, when we give in to temptation, it's actually a failure of trust. You know, giving into lust is a reflection that we don't trust in God's design for relationships. Giving into anger is a reflection that we don't trust that God is just. Giving into greed is a reflection that we don't trust that God will provide. If there is something right now that you're being tempted with in your life, and I might be so bold to suggest if you think there's nothing you're being tempted with in your life, it might be good to ask God for help to identify what it might be. Maybe it's fulfilling a hunger in an inappropriate way. Maybe it's trying to rush ahead of God's timing. Maybe it's making your trust in God conditional. Look to Jesus' example. Don't entertain it. If you do, you're kind of, as Tom Wright, I think, so helpfully puts it, playing with an idea until it becomes too difficult to resist. It's not if we're tempted, but when we're tempted. Uh, We live in a world in which there is a conflict going on. There is a conflict between the reign of two kingdoms, but the battle lines of that conflict are also drawn within our hearts. C.S. Lewis famously said, we can make two equal and opposite errors. One is to disbelieve in the existence of evil. The other is to have an excessive and unhealthy interest in it. We, we don't need to fear it. Evil is a defeated enemy. One day will be totally destroyed. But right now, we need to resist it. Because every time we do, we are pointing to the one who reigns. Every time Jesus responds from the Bible, so man shall not live on bread alone, worship the Lord your God and serve him only, do not put the Lord God to the test, he is quoting from one place, Deuteronomy chapter 6, eight now it's not just because it's his favorite bit and this is the only part that he got around to memorizing but these are the chapters from a sermon from moses to the israelites right on the edge of the jordan it's at the end of 40 years in the wilderness they are right on the precipice of entering the promised land and everything that moses shares is all about how they are to go forward how to live faithfully to God's ways, under God's rule, trusting in God's plan. Then we read verse 13. When the devil had finished all this tempting, he left him until an opportune time. It's totally ominous when we hear that and you think, when would this be? When Jesus was in another garden, when he was facing his greatest moment of test, but trusted in God's plans even when it came at great cost. When it comes to facing temptation, we don't need to be heroes because we've already got one. We just need to run away from temptation and towards Jesus. Jesus who does not use his power for personal gain, but gives it all up for us. Jesus who does not rush ahead for glory, but enjoys the path of the cross. Jesus, who does not put his life at risk to test God's faithfulness, but proves faithful by giving up his own life. Who, even when we fall short, when we run to him, will greet us with his mercy. Reminded in Hebrews, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathise with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet he did not sin. Let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. Why don't we pray and ask for that. Gracious God, Have we thank you so much that we can run to you And that as we come to you, we find one who's not unable to empathise with our weakness, but one who's been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet did not sin. Lord, how we thank you so much for Jesus's extraordinary faithfulness, that Jesus has come and stood in the place of sinners, that we might know forgiveness and life. Lord, how we thank you so much, it's through Jesus and his death and resurrection, that evil is defeated. And Lord, as we await that day when evil will be destroyed, please help us in the power of your spirit to live faithfully, trusting in your plans. Lord, we pray, please, in the power of your spirit, you would shine a light in our hearts and our minds, that you would reveal to us the places hidden, the things that we know about in which we are facing temptation. Lord, please help us to spot the lies of the enemy and that we drown them out with the words of your truth. Lord, please help us to flee from temptation and run to you. May every time we do that, may we point to the one who reigns. In Jesus' name, amen.